Welcome to Witness, a ministry of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi. Join us in person for worship each Sunday at 9.30. For more information about Covenant, including discipleship and mission opportunities, visit us at www.covenantpresjackson.org. If you've ever tried reading straight through the Bible, then you're probably aware that where we are in Exodus is the point in which many ambitious people get bogged down. The narrative, with beloved story after story, has paused, and we're given measurements for tabernacle furnishings. Now, I'll admit that I'm someone who actually reads instruction booklets, but I know that most people don't. But the difficulty in this section isn't just that it's full of measurements. The things described in detail are completely foreign from our religious practice today. I mean, how is it relevant? But all scripture, as the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy, is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. It has much to teach us about God. A good starting point is recognition of the fact that this section marks a significant moment in the history of God's people. There's, there's a trend on social media where people like to post a picture with the caption, where it started, and another with the words, how it's going. And the point is to show the humble origins and celebrate current victories. Well, the, the picture of how's it going painted with words here by Moses, is of a great nation with the freedom to worship God and the ability to do so in a way that they're assured is pleasing to God. And it's all done with beautifully ornate golden furnishings. But if you take a look at where it started, you've got one man named Israel in a place that was not his own, setting up a rock the rock that he just so happened to have used the night before as a pillow. And he poured oil on it as a remembrance of God in Bethel. That ordinary rock served Israel as a sign of God's presence, a far cry from the beautiful tabernacle described here in Exodus. The origins of God's people were truly humble. Even the choosing of Israel was a humble choice. Now, he wasn't chosen by God because he was a great king, nor was he chosen because of his moral character. In fact, he was a mess, and his family was a mess. But God kept his promise to Abraham through Isaac, and now Jacob, who is renamed Israel. And God, in his providence, blessed Israel and his large family, which was fractured by rival wives complicated by concubines, plagued by favoritism, torn by jealousy, and thrown into exile by famine. But in Egypt, the Lord united the family and multiplied them. And some 400 years later, they were a great multitude, so much so that they intimidated the most powerful human ruler at the time. And so the Lord rescued his people out of Egypt in the hands of Pharaoh and brought them toward a land of their own. 
And on the way, the Lord taught his people how they were to live before a holy God. A moral code was given that reflects the character of God himself, the Ten Commandments. They are the terms of the covenant between Israel and God. Our passage this morning about the Ark of the Covenant is another gift given by God. A gift that not only serves as a symbol of the presence of God, but one that's also used to bridge the chasm between God and humanity. That the ark is the most important tabernacle furnishing, which is why Moses tells us about it first, even before he describes the tabernacle where it was to be housed. The word tabernacle means tent or dwelling place. The tabernacle was a huge tent that served as a mobile temple so that God could be represented and worshiped among the people of Israel as they traveled to the promised land. When the tabernacle was set up, the ark was kept in the most important place within it, the Holy of Holies. See, the tabernacle had an outer courtyard where people could bring their sacrifices, but only the priests could go inside the tent because it was holy ground. Inside the tent was a curtain which separated the holy place where the priests minister from the most holy place where only the high priest could enter on one special day of the year, the day of atonement. It was in this inner sanctum that the ark was kept and it was the only thing in the Holy of Holies. Now all this is by the Lord's design. God gave Moses precise instructions to pass on to the people of Israel so that they would know exactly how to build, decorate, and use the tabernacle. These decorations are preserved in Scripture, not so that we can replicate them today, but because they teach us that the Lord himself is the one who determines how he is to be worshipped, which is a relief. It means that we don't have to come up with new creative ways to worship nor do we have to wonder whether God is pleased by our worship. Because God reveals exactly how he is to be worshiped, we can be assured that he is pleased by our obedience to his word. And there's another reason why exact specifications are given to Moses. The things they were instructed to build in the desert were copies of heavenly things. The tabernacle and its furnishings were visible symbols of spiritual realities, the heavenly temple and throne room of God. Like other arks in the Bible, such as the one that delivered Noah and his family through a flood, or the one that delivered Moses from Pharaoh, this ark is also a container. It's essentially a decorative box to hold holy objects, first of which is a copy of the Ten Commandments, which is why we call it the Ark of the Covenant. The Ten Commandments are the terms of the covenant. Later, we learn that a sample of manna is also kept in there, along with Aaron's budded staff. The box was small for how important it is. It was measured in cubits, which is roughly the distance from the tip of the middle finger to the elbow. And so the Ark was almost four feet long and just over two feet wide and two feet deep. It was to be made from acacia, an expensive wood that was renowned in Egypt for being both hard and light. 
and the box was coated with bright, reflective, expensive gold. Even more impressive than the gold-plated box was the lid. The lid was made of pure gold. And on top of the lid, built into the lid, were two cherubim. Now, throughout the Bible, in addition to angels, there are two mythical creatures that show up as heavenly servants, the cherubim and seraphim. The imagery of seraphim developed from the fiery serpents sent by the Lord to test the people of Israel in the wilderness to what the prophet Isaiah later calls flying fiery serpents. And from there, the image of seraphim developed into something like a dragon. The cherubim were like griffins. They had four legs, like a lion, uh, impressive wings, and the head of a human. And the purpose of the imagery is to remind Israel of the Garden of Eden, the place where God fully dwelled among his people. When Adam and Eve were removed from the garden, the garden was sealed off and guarded by two cherubim and a flaming sword. And because of this, the artwork of cherubim served as a reminder and signifier of the presence of God. In multiple places throughout the Bible, God is said to dwell between and above those cherubim, as if the lid of the ark is the very throne of God and the box is his footstool. You see this imagery in Psalm 99, which says he sits enthroned upon the cherubim. And verse five of that same Psalm commands us to worship at his footstool. The cherubim on the lid of the ark had their heads facing down because God, who sits enthroned above them, is too holy for even them to look at. Now, the throne of God didn't just sit in one place. It was designed to be mobile because God, as king and divine warrior, leads and fights for his people. And so the ark had rings at each corner and gold-covered poles were permanently running through them so that the ark could be carried and transported without being touched. When the tabernacle was set up, the ark sat in the most holy place, hidden from public view. But when God's people traveled, the ark was publicly paraded in front of the 12 tribes of Israel as a visible sign that God was leading the way. The nation of Israel didn't travel based on the whims of Moses, but on the direction and timing of the Lord. Though the people sometimes doubted if God was truly present with them and leading them, the ark was meant to encourage their faith. And it did so to great effect when they brought it into God-sanctioned battles, which were the means of divine judgment upon wicked nations. And they witnessed the Lord fight for his people as their divine warrior king, most famously in the Battle of Jericho when the Ark of the Covenant was marched around and the walls of the great city crumbled. And because the Lord was present with the Ark and fought for them, sometimes the people presumed upon the Lord to fight their own battles wars that were not sanctioned by the Lord. This happened when the Israelites picked a fight with the Philistines and lost possession of the ark for a time. Now, this was a serious mistake because power did not reside in the ark itself. It was not like a magic talisman for winning any fight. Uh, that's the same mistake made by Adolf Hitler in the movie Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know, I had to work in a reference at some point. In the movie, Hitler thought that possessing the Ark would make his army invincible, a plot point which makes for a great movie, but it's terrible theology because it confuses the sign 
with what is being signified. The ark was a symbol of the Lord's presence, but it was not God himself or his actual throne. It was a visible sign and reminder of the invisible God who ruled in their midst, fought for them, and even more importantly, is merciful to his people. The lid wasn't just the throne of God. It was also the mercy seat. As the mercy seat, the ark was used to communicate how a holy God and an unholy people could be reconciled with one another, an act of God's mercy called atonement. Atonement was necessary because the covenant God made with Israel was frequently broken by the people, sometimes out of ignorance, but often out of willful disobedience. But God is merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he provided Israel a way to be made right again through a sacrificial system where the blood of animals would be spilled for the injustices committed by God's people, rather than the blood of the sinful people themselves, which is what the law demands. Sacrifices were a regular part of daily life. But on one day of the year, a special act of forgiveness occurred on behalf of the entire covenant community, the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement, two goats were used to show the two sides of atonement. The first goat was sacrificed by the high priest on behalf of the people of Israel. The high priest would take the blood of the goat and enter the Holy of Holies and sprinkle the blood of the goat on the mercy seat of the ark. This ritual symbolized the divine side of atonement, where God's holy justice is satisfied by blood. His law was broken by the covenant community, and so justice must be done. The penalty of the law is death, and so death must be paid. The goat dies as a substitute for the people. The second goat symbolized the human side of atonement. The high priest would place his hands on the goat and confess the sins of the people over it, symbolically transferring the sin and guilt of the people to the goat. The goat would then be escorted out of the camp as a symbol that the sins of the people were removed from the community. Our idiom, scapegoat, comes from this practice. The two goats teach us that atonement involves both the removal of sin from the people and the satisfaction of divine wrath from the injustice done. Central to this ceremony is the Ark of the Covenant where the blood would be offered to God. And so the Ark of the Covenant was truly an incredible gift given by God to represent his presence, rule, leadership, and mercy. But if it's so important and beneficial, then what happened to it? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us. Presumably, it was destroyed by the Babylonians when God sent his people into exile as divine judgment for continually breaking his commands and refusing to repent. It must have been devastating for them to lose such an important part of their worship and connection to God. But the ark was merely a temporary symbol that pointed to a greater, permanent reality to come. At just the right moment in time, God sent forth his only begotten son to take on flesh, be born on earth and physically dwell among the people. The word used in John's gospel to say that God dwelled with us is the same word as tabernacle. Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us, was a far better gift than the ark could ever be. 
The ark represented the presence of God. But in Jesus, God was fully present. Likewise, on the Day of Atonement, the blood of goats sprinkled on the mercy seat merely represented the forgiveness of sin. But it was by the sacrifice of Jesus that forgiveness between God and his people was made possible. The Day of Atonement was repeated annually, but the sacrifice of Jesus crucified on the cross was sufficient once for all time. The ark was a gift given for a time, but we have the greater gift of Jesus Christ. And we have been given a greater symbol of his presence than the ark, which was confined to one place on the entire earth and it was inaccessible to the people. The symbol we were given, instituted by Jesus, reminds us of the sacrifice that reconciled us to God once and for all time. And it allows us to commune with God by faith, the Lord's Supper. Therefore, let us keep the feast faithfully as we await the day when Christ will return as divine warrior, when the true ark of the covenant and throne of God, which is currently in the heavenly temple, will be revealed to us as our reading from Revelation describes. And on that day, God will usher in his kingdom fully and every wrong will be made right. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to Witness, a ministry of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi. 